bound obviously because that guy is writing it so he will just gloss over whatever abuses she might have hurled at him or you know maybe she threw some stuff at him maybe she they continue to have fights over it for years saying you know don't you remember the time that you ghosted me for 9 years you bloody bastard yeah in my imagination that's what happens <laughs> yeah yeah i mean so why not yeah. <laughs> absolutely that's absolutely valid welcome to books and beyond with bound i'm tara khandelwal i'm michelle decosta and in this podcast we uncover the stories behind some of the best written books of our time and find out how these books reflect our lives and our society today so tune in every wednesday to enter a whole new world with a new author and a new idea yes and after 3 years and 2 million listens we are back with a power packed season 5 with hard hitting questions and life changing books so let's dive in hi everyone welcome back to books in beyond with bound we are really thrilled to interview the one and only ashok banker who shot to fame with his retelling of the ramayana he's known to have started the whole trend of mythological stories in india actually and he's published in 56 countries with over 1.2 million copies in print wow I'm very excited about today because it's a Valentine's special, and we're going to be talking about Ashok Banker's new book, Epic Love Stories from the Mahabharata, and it had us head over heels in love with the characters. I love love stories. I love Indian mythology, um, and this was a perfect book to read just in time for uh, Valentine's Day. And also, who could imagine one can find love in a book known for war? So, you know, Ashok Banker did that, and we'll find out how. and we're going to explore what love has looked like for centuries in our mythology and does it look the same as it did back then today welcome ashok welcome hi hi michelle and great to be here uh, anthara hi uh, i just want to just a slight correction that the bio you read of me is about of obviously it's valid for the basics uh, it's also you know because epic loves is actually a a book a collection of stories published about 12 or 13 years ago the bio is a little out of date the book is in the book is timeless and uh, so i've actually now published just over 80 books and they've sold over 3 million copies and uh, in i don't know 70 countries and 30 something languages so so i just wanted to bring that point to your attention oh thank you thank you i'm sorry about the thing i think maybe yeah, wikipedia no has some like online has it wrong but you <laughs> yeah yeah they yeah. updated yeah. yeah yeah no worries sometimes even i lose track of how many books i've written <laughs> so but that that's that's amazing yeah we're so we're so excited to have you here especially because you know before the conversation michelle and i were talking and we were like you know you're really sort of like the father of you know indian mythology in india I think you're sort of one of the names that is synonymous with making mythology accessible in sort of like mass market reading. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. I, I was actually just talking to these guys the other day, you know, Valmiki and Vyas, and they were saying, "Yeah, what is this thing about you being called the father?" Vyas said, "I'm the father," and Valmiki said, "No, I'm the father." So I said, okay, <laughs> like, I'm just, the, I'm the grandson. Okay. I'm the grandson. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very factory. Yeah. But you know, I just wanted to point out that these stories have been told and retold for thousands of years. You know, in the 12th century, Kamban uh, famously retold the Ramayana in a South version, where he reset even Ayodhya is set in the South. Everything is set in the South, and he even the tribes are actually the South cultures and the, the tribes and languages. And he did it so beautifully with such beautiful language and descriptions. he made it his own so this is something that's been happening down the ages and all great stories are retold time and again as as you know i've mentioned in one of my introductions to the ramayan series actually i wrote it in the late 1990s it was published in 2003 i wrote that you know every time a grandmother retells these stories that becomes her version and we are all retelling these stories in one way or the other time and again and it belongs to all of us and we all remake it and reinvent it every time we tell the story so i'm just one among these billions of retellers 
and uh, i guess i'm just happy and lucky that of course my retelling caught on and i think people especially young people when it was first published now those young people are older but back then they were young and they all loved it and took to it and uh, i think that's i'm just lucky to have been that person yeah absolutely and and you know what what i really like about uh, this book is ashok see i know that you know it's an old book but it's a new collected edition from speaking tiger you know so i loved that you know you, you have brought it together kind of like resurrected it uh, you know for for today's generation and i am re- really looking forward to today's episode because you know my uh, context of let's say you know valentines day has always been saint valentines right who was a 3rd century saint and and you know then that's how i would say the day has evolved and of course now it's become a more commercialized um holiday but today i'm looking to learn a lot more about indian mythology you know the very first question um that i have is you know see there are so many lessons that one can actually experience from mythological tales you know there are certain virtues like you know being honest being ethical and one would you know rarely think of romance especially you know in the mahabharata which is known for war so why did you actually decide to focus on the love stories from the adi parva great question and very good point epic loves is a new book and i should have clarified that that while the stories in it were published about 12 or 14 years ago basically this collection of the of all the stories is a new edition and also it's a beautiful edition i love the cover that speaking tiger has given it it's been re-edited so there are some little errors that have been corrected which were in the earlier editions and most of all what you said is so apt because the mahabharat is an epic known for war and known for uh, let me put it how do i put this in today's terms in a way for its uh, masculinity and its uh, you know macho almost toxic masculinity in many ways uh, it is in fact uh, quite misogynistic also in some places very misogynistic which i always used to try and explain this i mean not i'm not trying to justify it because who the hell am i to justify it you know it's not my uh, epic i didn't write it but the fact is that it is written by these old bearded men celibate bearded men living in the forest all their lives so what would you expect those guys to write <laughs> you know obviously then it becomes a male dominated story so what i actually found interesting and what i well my way into the epic into the world of the story of the mahabharat uh, was basically to find the stories about real people which somehow comes through despite the storyteller you know there's a line i think in stephen king he's used it on a few of his books which says this the tale not the teller and that's what i went for i tried to find what is the soul what is the heart of this story and if you really go down deep and you ignore as i said you know the misogyny the old uh, celibate men obviously you know their descriptions and the way they describe the women and all is very much not just of that era because there are uncles like that even today let's face it but of their kind of background but at the same time they were not able to completely bury the feminism the fiery spirit of uh, the real people that some of these characters and i speak of them as characters with using air quotes because maybe they were real people maybe they were based on real people we don't know but they are real in their emotions in their connections most of all in their love that's what i found for example the famous dialogue of uh, the mahabharat is often regarded as a justification for war and dharma or dharm but actually i see it as love it's a, it's a thesis on love which is that arjun is saying these are the people i love how can i kill them and of course his mentor krishna is saying yes but you have to because that's your dharm that's your duty and so on so time and time again what i kept finding is it's a battle between love and war and uh, that is what i went for and that's why i said let me find the stories that are purely about love first let's take it over i mean let's make it our indian desi valentines day forget saint valentine and forget uh, the commercialism let's talk about love and let's talk about love which is so timeless and eternal that it's been there from the days of the mahabharat and far beyond beyond and before that and it will never die even war can't kill it those are the stories that i wanted to tell because that's such a beautiful thing to know that these stories still resonate even today 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've grown up sort of like reading a lot about, you know, Indian mythology, Amachitrakatha, watching it on TV, grandparents talking about it and things like that. When you're a child, you sort of take all of this as par for the course, right? And then, you know, as uh, we grow up, then we realize that, oh, you know, we start analyzing a little deeper. So I wanted to actually ask you about the misogyny in some of these tropes that we come across, you know, and how to deal with them. So we have love stories that are problematic, like, you know, Sita having to walk through the fire to prove her purity to Ram or uh, Draupadi with the five husbands. And how do we situate these stories in their context as well as read them as millennials? Like, how are we supposed to wrap our heads around these contradictions, around these elements? Oh, uh I see, I can't speak, you know, and give advice for everyone. That's not my worldview. But I can tell you how I approached it, which is I found them hugely problematic. And it's a very tough thing to do when you're trying to retell a story that is inherently problematic and you don't uh, vibe with those kind of uh, views and those kind of attitudes and outdated mores and uh, morality. Because, you know, at the same time, you're telling the story. So how do you do it? Because the story has those problematic elements. So I don't know if I really found a solution in my retelling. And I would say maybe my retelling has those problematic elements. Uh, Even though I don't agree with them, I strongly disagree. But at the same time, I think there is a way for us as people who are not looking to retell like Ashok Banker, which I did, you know, retell the whole Ramayana, the whole Mahabharata. You're just trying to relate to the stories. And as a person, not as the writer, as a person, I tell you, I reject those those elements. I reject those parts. I even question whether the Uttar Khan is actually a part of the Ramayan story because there is a lot of evidence that shows that it's a later edition and that it wasn't written by the same person or persons who wrote the earlier six Khans. There is a lot of uh, reason to doubt it, question it, and even outright reject it. And I say, yeah, reject it. I don't accept You know, first of all, how can it be a love story when, you know, the dude is making his woman walk through fire? I mean, like, what kind of a test is that? I mean, first of all, why do you need a test? And, you know, we are living in an age where not only has Article 370 been knocked down, uh, but we are living in an age where even adultery is not even considered illegal or necessary grounds for divorce. So, which is absolutely right, because... A person's body is their own. A person's sexuality is their own. And even if Sita, I say, let's go all the way. Let's take this all the way. And let's say, okay, suppose Sita chose to sleep with Ravan. Okay, it's a different question. And that itself goes into another misogynistic area. If Ravan sort of took her by force, that's another problematic area. But let's say that, you know, we're questioning whether she either willingly submitted, and I'm Again, using air quotes for the word, because again, that's a problematic concept. Or let's take it even further and say, what if she willingly had an affair with him? You know, whether it was Stockholm Syndrome and she was, you know, intimidated or not, or maybe she chose to. Let's even take the extreme and say she chose to. So what? So what? Well, what is this bullshit about purity? I mean, what is purity? I mean, where does this purity come from? from and why isn't it applicable to males? You know, so... I reject it. And I say we should just reject those parts that we don't agree with. As I said earlier, this is our Ramayana. This is our time. This is our Mahabharata. We get to decide what these stories are really about. We don't have to take it as gospel. We are not, first of all, we are not in a culture that historically says that, oh, this is the word of God and we have to accept it as it is. We cannot question it. We are not that culture. So, It has always been a culture of retellings, of reinvention, of new versions. We have the right to reinvent certain works, for sure, which are, first of all, problematic, questionable, and anyway have been told and retold umpteen times by myriads of writers. So that's what I say. Just reject it. Yeah. I love the story of Shakuntala and Dushyant. Actually, maybe you could tell us the story of Shakuntala and Dushyant for our listeners. I think you'd be better at telling the story. And then, you know, we have a couple of questions around this topic. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows the basics of Shakuntala and Dushyant. Sorry, I'm fumbling over words over here. I'll be very honest, you know, I 
uh, have a problem pronouncing and saying these words aloud because a lot of these names are fine to read, but they don't really trip easily off the tongue. They're not like, you know, Michelle and Tara, you know, for instance, or Ashok. So yeah. <laughs> I tend to get tongue twisted, which is why I hate reading my own work because I get so caught up in all the Sanskrit and, you know, the pronunciations. Uh, anyway, to come back to the point, we all know the basics of Shakuntala and Dushyant. Basically, a prince goes into a forest to hunt. He happens across this uh, sage's uh, daughter. He falls in love with her. She falls in love with him. They have an affair. And then he leaves and goes back to his kingdom. He promises to come back to her. He never comes back. And uh, at the end of it, she decides she has a baby because uh, he left her, you know, with uh, with child, so to speak. And so she has the baby and she names the baby Bharat. Bharat, actually, which is after his tribe, which is the Bharata tribe. And then she takes Bharat, her little son, and she goes to the kingdom. And she goes and meets Raja Dushyan and tells him, you know, don't you remember we made a promise and you were to come back and fetch me and our kid is growing up now. He needs to go to school. He needs, you know, clothes and uniform and money for books and stuff like that. <laughs> Excuse my, you know, modernization, but that's not the way it is in the story that I've retold. I've told it very scrupulously according to the original, but I'm just having a little fun here when chatting about it. Uh, because I'm trying to make the point that the context is always contemporary. Whatever story we read, even if it's set 3,000 years in the past, we have to relate to it as we are today. And uh, even if those details are different, even though she's in that sense literally a sage's wife and goes to the, and he's a raja and so on. So basically she wants him to do right by her and marry her and she still loves him. You know, and her son wants to meet his father and Dushant refuses to even recognize her. You know, he absolutely pretends to have forgotten. And this is justified again by the sage, sages who have written these epics as being the result of a curse of another sage, which is very convenient because, you know, you're sort of pushing your own agenda there once again. Think that, no, look at the power we Brahmins have. Uh, so which is very uncool in a way but okay so let's say that he has been cursed and so he's forgotten but even then seeing her and listening to her i mean believe the woman for god's sake you know but uh, he still refuses to acknowledge her and she gets mad and then through a series of circumstances i'll leave something for the reading also you have to read the story to know how it turns out but let's say that things take an interesting turn towards the end and that's basically the story of shakuntala and Dushan told that really beautifully so thank you for that yes yes i just wanted to add that you know um there's this term in romance stories which is called meet cute which is the very first time a couple actually meets on page and i still remember when i was reading shakuntala and dushan's story i just you know gasped at that scene it was so beautiful you know the way he actually goes through the whole forest and finally he meets this rishi's daughter i think that's one of the most beautiful moments i've come across in any romance story that i've read yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, one of the things that I, because I've read, I remember the first time I read Shakuntala and Dushyant, uh, I actually read the Amar Chitra Katha version. And in that version, um, you know, the king um, loses his memory because he, uh, Shakuntala gives him a ring and the ring gets lost and that's why he forgets Shakuntala. And then there's another version of the story where um, Shakuntala doesn't forgive him and sends the son with him but refuses to come you know so there's multiple versions and when I was reading your version I actually uh, I had never come across this version where his memory begins to deceive him you know uh, and it's not because of some magic ring or anything like that but he sort of almost in self-denial or, or, or uh, you know that he just forgets or as you said ghost Shakuntala and then in the end after nine years he tells her that it was all always part of the plan to pretend like he forgot her. So, so I wanted to know, was it really? And does she really forgive him? And okay, there's many questions. Here. Which version is true and, and why so many versions? Okay, so as I said, there have been so many versions and retellings. Each person has made this, this story and all the stories from the epics their own when they retold it. Now, what I've done in my Mahabharata retelling in particular, not my Ramayana so much, which is a reinvention and reimagining. But in the Mahabharata, I've been scrupulously faithful to the original. So I've actually worked with the Sanskrit in front of me. 
with all the available translations in front of me so i can because obviously i am not uh, sanskrit uh, i'm not i'm not educated in sanskrit i've never learned it but i have learned to figure it out as i go along so i kept all these original authentic versions which are acknowledged to be the authentic ones and basically what you're reading in epic loves in all these stories in this book is basically the way it is actually in the mahabharat so i can't claim to have read all the versions that you've described and but i'm aware that there are multiple versions but this is the authentic original mahabharat version which is the original version of these stories so that's how it is believe it or not and i have stuck to that i also wanted to ask you know in the story that do you think that she really does forgive him i just wanted to know because it i don't know it seemed like such an egregious error was it really sort of part of the plan that what do you think what is your opinion so okay like i said earlier i said it's very important to know who is telling the story even though stephen king says this the tale not the teller but that is the attempt of the writer to be honest to the story and its world and its characters but as readers we have to know who has written it and we have to especially in today's time ask what is their agenda you know is if it's a guy writing it obviously we are on alert for whether there's male gaze in it you know and things like that and misogyny and you know how has he accepted it so these are valid questions as i said i've been honest and faithful to the original source which is the mahabharat and so i've kept the original ending and everything now you're asking a question about what is my opinion about it well again like i said earlier feel free to reject this version or the original and to make it your own i've chosen not to do that because i felt there should be a version which is the original uh, an edition which is the original and i also say that we can also look at this also in a modern context which is that yeah i mean he's a guy like this such a guy thing to do right uh, you know in the sense that saying that oh you know uh, maybe i have early onset alzheimer's i mean this is me sort of just riffing that you know oh you know i forgot it is like what is that ridiculous shaggy song you know it wasn't me you know it's that kind of a very guy thing to have to say and do and whether she really accepts him or not maybe because it's a guy telling the story i don't mean me though of course i am a guy but i mean the original sage who wrote the the original source story uh obviously because that guy is writing it so he will just gloss over whatever abuses she might have hurled at him or you know maybe she threw some stuff at him maybe she they continue to have fights over it for years saying you know don't you remember the time that you ghosted me for 9 years you bloody bastard yeah in my imagination that's what happens <laughs> yeah yeah i mean so why not yeah. <laughs> absolutely that's absolutely valid but at the same time i also feel that what choice to the poor thing have you know what i mean now that she had come and she'd exposed herself till that point she could have chosen to be a single mother i mean i was raised by a single mother okay so she could have chosen to be a single mother and raised bharat on her own and said to hell with your father you know if you want to go to him fine but i am not interested and lived her life happily and who needs men but since she came and did this in front of everybody now what choice did she have so she had to sort of do a jugaad and had to sort of uh, accept his male bullshit that's how i would look at it <laughs> yeah i love it <laughs> yeah and actually you know what i think is is because it was set back in the day right like i do envision her forgiving him because of you know the the stereotypes and what society um expects of her and and you know like if i i can immediately think of like a christian reference where you know uh, jesus said that if someone slaps your right cheek you then show them your left cheek and and you know people say that that might be okay for that period of time but in this world you know you can never expect someone to be that generous right so i also feel it's about timing and and if we talk about her in today's day yes i don't think she would have forgiven him yeah it is yeah another like thing that you know i think you touched about this a little earlier is that you know uh, obviously it's a man writing it right and there are all these tropes that come up which you know with the tropes of dominant men and uh, these women who are very shy and they have this ideal beauty they are described in this uh, language you know the way they look all of those things there's this ideal like sort of uh feminism that they all have right but but at the same time i think what i really liked about these stories was that they also sort of really feminist so 
for example, Shakuntala who says that, you know, you will be cursed, you can't treat me this way uh, to Dushyant. And even the story of, uh, I really like the story of Ganga and Shantanu and how Ganga says that, you know, she will marry Shantanu. But, you know, at the end of the day, he has to agree that he will never ask her where he's from. And she is able to sort of have the power to do whatever she likes. And at the end of the day, you know, she is the goddess. She has the power, even though she's conforming to these sort of tropes of, you know, being a wife, being a beautiful woman, being a seductress, all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. See, one thing that I've very consciously done in all my mythological retellings is basically find the truth within this male gaze, male celibate old man uh, version of these stories and try to find the real story within that version, within that, uh, you know, that epic. And I have then brought it out. I've tried to emphasize it. It's a very subtle thing and it's not an easy thing to do, but I have tried to bring out and subtly emphasize the empowerment and the agency of the marginalized characters basically in these stories. Now, that's a conscious decision and that's very much me at work. If you read the original, let me put it this way, that there might be a tutu meme wherein both are shown as equally, you know, trying to, uh, you know, push forward their point of view. And at the same time, even the original uh, writer, the storyteller, whether it's Vyas or Valmiki or whoever, is also forced to admit that but she prevailed and things like that. So it's often told in just one line. I've taken that as a cue to justify uh, strengthening the language and the dialogue. And I'm not trying to put words in her mouth. All I'm trying to do is give back the agency that I believe she had, whether it's the case of Ganga, whether it's the case of uh, Shakuntala, whether it's the case of any of the other, you know, Sharmishta, for example, in one of the other stories in Epic Loves. I have tried to give it back to them because as I always say, we are all empowered. It's only society and, you know, the prevailing uh, attitude that disempowers us. So it's not a question of women empowerment. It's a question that women have been disempowered and marginalized groups have been disempowered for so long. So all I'm trying to do is reclaim that power that they always had and rightly possessed. So that's what I've tried to do. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, that is something that definitely, you know, uh, struck out to me. And I love the story of uh, Ganga and Shantanu. And I love the even um, the visual and the linguistic descriptions of her as a river. And how, you know, this river is now sort of has a physical manifestation and this beautiful woman. Uh, but this beautiful woman is so reminiscent of the power of the river. Um, I loved all of those things as well. And then in the end, obviously, you know, yeah, I just wanted to add, actually, and, you know, when I was reading about this, you know, Ganga being the holy river, obviously, you know, we know because, you know, we are Indians, but I remember seeing this Japanese animated uh, film, it's called Ponyo by uh, Ghibli Studio and one of the best animations, uh, you know, they've come up with. So in that, actually, you know, the ocean is the mother. Uh, she's the mother of this uh, goldfish and it is just so beautiful. I just love to see the metaphor of, of a woman, uh, you know, being, let's say, like the mother of the ocean or the mother of... Uh, uh, yeah, it's like water and life and all of those things. Um, and, you know, actually, let me go on to the next story because you're, in your book, you know, it's you speak about love stories and a love story doesn't only have to be a romantic love story. It can be a platonic love story. And one of the love stories that I really loved is the one about um, Shantanu's son. So what happens is that Shantanu, uh, Ganga and Shantanu, you know, they have to separate and Shantanu is heartbroken for years and years and, you know, he's not found another woman to uh, replace Ganga and then finally he does find uh, a woman that he thinks, you know, he can make a life with and her father says that, you know, you already have a son from your previous marriage and I can't give my daughter to you because... Uh, you know, if you have children with her, they won't have any claim to the throne. So what Shantanu's son from Ganga does is that he says that, you know, I will not only not marry, but I will also uh, take a vow of celibacy. So none of my sons will ever have claim of the throne. And he does it. And this is the story of Bhishma, you know, who's such a main character in Mahabharata. And I never knew this was the origin story of this character, Bhishma. 
and he says that you know i will remain celibate and so that my father can you know <laughs> have the love of his life and have partnership and i just found that story so beautiful um and i wanted to ask you know what other kinds of love have you tried to depict in this book which are not romantic love so yeah yeah i'm so happy that you discovered and uh, learned the story of bhishma through uh, my epic loves uh, book because it is a very great story because bhishma or devavrat which is what his original name was before he got this title of bhishma which is you know he of the ter- terrible vow basically is a such an interesting and fascinating character you know born as he is half human half god uh, a demigod so to speak but not a demigod in the uh, percy jackson kind of space is a demigod who's trapped unfortunately not in contemporary america uh, but in uh, ancient india and he's caught in the jaal of the morality and the uh, social expectations of that era so when his father you know falls in love again with the fisher chief's uh, daughter and bhishma takes this terrible vow in a way it locks him into celibacy and also to being alone because obviously i mean how is he going to ever get close to a partner uh, all his life uh, if he cannot give her what the expected social contract was of that time which is that they'll have kids together they'll so on and so forth you know santan and all that so therefore he had to also be alone and that's such a sad thing in a way and yet actually when you read the mahabharat he's not a sad character he's such a he's so full of wisdom and knowledge and grace most of all grace that i found that so fascinating and so interesting and uh, i'm going to say this even if it seems somewhat controversially i think he's a he's a great gay icon and uh, who's to say that he didn't find love with other men or another man a special man maybe and maybe he had a husband but in those days the only thing that was recognized was was a formal union between a man and woman which was acknowledged before the court and society for example uh, to give you an uh, you know an actual example from the epic uh, dashrath uh, rama's father actually had 350 uh, concubines in his harem in the special palace for them so he slept with all these other women but when it came to actually impregnating he was obviously uh, uh, infertile you know uh, that is obvious because he could not actually father the four sons that are credited you know uh, to him uh, but those were the only ones recognized as the official ones because those were the sons born by his three wives which was official wives so for example just as dashrath had three official wives and 350 other lovers who's to say that bhishma didn't have male lovers and who's to sh- say that he did not find love and maybe that the rishis you know who wrote the the story did not mention that did not mention and completely glossed over it maybe they had an ancient version of article 370 back in those days who knows so but that's the way i look at him and i say he's a great gay icon so i i think and at the same time he's able to sublimate his sexuality into becoming a kind of a guru and great father because he's not strictly speaking just the grandfather he's in fact of you know the icon for several generations of the mahabharat story but the great father of uh, all the all the kurus including the pandavas and the kauravas everyone and uh, i just see that as such a fascinating thing so yeah to come back to the point which is that while of course epic loves is mostly romantic uh, heterosexual stories at the same time i think i'm i'd like to you know ho- i like to hope that i opened a small window on the world of that era which was a world where it was a different world but a freer world it was much more open just because we're not told about all sorts of relationships and all sorts of uh, connections and all sorts of loves that didn't mean they didn't exist and i hope that in my style and in the language i've used and the way i've tried to describe the world that i've given that sense that it was a world where anything was possible and everyone was free to love whomever they wanted and go with whomever they chose that is really beautiful and i really like 
that perspective because that was one of my questions there's a lot of sort of heterosexual love also you know in terms of like gay icons and lgbtq characters i recently saw this wonderful play called shikhandi uh, where you know shikhandi is sort of a non binary character and we're thinking there's a lot of elements that that are sadly not accepted in society today but that have been portrayed in ancient texts we have you know obviously the kama sutra we have you know uh, sex outside marriage uh, you know we have the geeta govinda which is a series of epic erotic poems between radha and krishna uh, you, you even have polyamory so what happened what, what do you think these myths are trying to trying to show why is it sort of not translated today sort of why are we so sort of like you know we have backwards today well i i mean the answer is very simple that those in those days i mean we talk about you know you know those times those times and you know when we justify how someone behaved even 10 years ago we talk about those those times but actually that's bullshit because there have always been uh, people who you know were regressive in thinking and in their outlook and there've always been people who are progressive but back in those times if you really i feel personally the, the truth about the ancient era was that it was live and let live everyone did as they pleased and there was no twitter where everybody could uh, you know dogpile on someone because they didn't behave the way that you know everyone felt they should be behaving or doing what they should whether in a positive uh, point of view as in you know actually uh, calling out people who have done wrong or even in a negative point of view which again to use the example of twitter it's so good at you know being so toxic also so maybe there were some people who felt that this is not right maybe there was others who didn't but it was a live and let live world you know and because that is the human experience this whatever terms we use today whether it's polyamory or whether it's uh, triads or whether it's uh, non binary uh, you know these are all terms which are our attempts today to capture in our modern language uh, concepts and uh, relationships and roles which have always existed it's just that we have chosen to you know trim out all this wonderful uh, complexity of the real world and to stick to a heterosexual uh, binary kind of a construct which is a construct it's a social construct and that we've all sort of bought into or we've been spoon fed from birth now that's a choice that's been made it's like the bullshit that you know people would say about the caste system oh it's because of division of labor it's for the betterment of society all bullshit i mean come on it's bias and bigotry plain and simple so in the same way the fact that we are fighting today for lgbtq rights you know at a time you know and the first trans india's first trans couple is about to have their child uh, which is such a beautiful and great moment and i wish them all the happiness in the world but the fact that this is historic is is shameful from the point of view that this should be commonplace you know it should be a, an accepted part of society and that's that is the sad thing that we live in a regressive world the world has society has become more regressive and if you ask me why that is i feel because we all in each other's business we're all practically looking over each other's shoulders and looking into each other's houses almost literally because of the density of population uh that's one thing and because of social media and connectivity and i think the internet has actually exacerbated uh, this problem it's it's multiplied toxicity and weaponized it basically which is a sad thing so but that's how it goes the same things that connect us and bring us so much of uh, you know quality in our lives the same technology also comes with a lot of inherent problems and back then there was no way to call out either the good things or the bad things or the things that one disagreed with whether they were good or bad in in the ancient world yet people did everything and went about their lives and other people didn't even get into it so the moment you start getting into other people's business that's where the problem starts in my opinion the moment you are overthinking and over uh, you know getting over involved in someone else's life you are going to judge them whether you like it or not from your limited point of view 
and i think it's a sad thing because we should be celebrating the diversity of you know of our, of everyone not just of our country but of the world so in a way i actually one of the reasons why i retell these ancient epics is because i don't have to you know uh, restrict myself to the accepted social mores of today i can write about these things and yes like the example of shikandi there are lots of stories which are not as popular and highlighted i would love to tell these stories to in time and i do hope to yeah yeah no and i'm really glad that you actually brought up you know about bishma uh, you know being a gay icon because that's exactly what i wanted to ask you you know like are there enough stories in indian mythology right not just the mahabharata but in other texts are there enough stories that are not about heterosexual characters you know which is not just love between a man and a woman and and what are they um yeah that's a good question now the the flip side of it is that there are some stories and they have been uh, brought out and even i think retold in some uh, lgbtq uh, anthologies uh, but the fact is that they are not that widespread and that commonplace i wonder in fact i question whether it's because as i said earlier the people who told these stories whether we call them vyas again i'm using air quotes over here because nobody knows for sure whether there was only one vyas there likely was a vyas but whether then the later recensions of the epic mahabharat as it grew from the original jaya to bharata to mahabharata as we know it today and it went on getting added to over the centuries whether it was retold by uh, sauthis you know the sauthis the reteller or the person that who's uh, retelling the retelling of the retelling so on in the in the epic uh, so the question is basically whether all these guys were trying to further a certain agenda that agenda being brahmanism and here caste becomes a very big question so brahmanism was the prevailing uh, you know attitude of of these tellers of these retellers or or storytellers and uh, they were promoting brahmanism because they were going through a period at that time where kshatriyas were considered superior simply because they were the kings they owned the wealth the property they had the army so they could take things by force and even brahmins needed uh, kshatriyas to uh, to come to them and respect them only then they could get so it's very likely that there was a brahmin agenda behind this behind why they did not uh, you know highlight all the diversity of the sexualities and the sexual lifestyle that were practiced at that time i believe that this is my personal opinion based on my uh, reading of these epics in their original form time and again and i believe that they did pursue that agenda and they did uh, highlight and promote brahmanism that's why you'll find so many glorifications of all the swamis and the brahmins and the rishis and maharishis throughout all these versions uh, and because of that they glossed over or downplayed or even outright excised cut out uh, you know these other stories and that is a sad thing because the few that we have left are sort of between the cracks or in fact you'll also find them if you want to look if you go to the tribal versions for example the tribal version and each tribe of india the scheduled caste scheduled tribes as we call them today but they are the original tribes of india they are the indigenous peoples of india they are the storekeepers of our memory actually and if you look at their versions for example draupadi is recognized as a as what would today we called an outcast or shudra or a tribal woman's uh, icon you know for those people and she is the hero of the epic in a way she is rightly the hero of the epic and it's told from her point of view and she is a force and it's a be- they're beautiful versions of the mahabharat which are nothing like this karan arjun macho hirogiri kind of epic that we have all usually grown up watching and seeing and reading so i think there are lost versions of the mahabharat and of the ancient uh, times and the stories that we unfortunately have never seen and the only way now to reclaim them is for someone you know to actually invent them and at the same time try to stay true to that world and that era which is a tough task because everyone will question lekin ye kaha likha hai where is this written from which scripture have you taken it and the answer would be it isn't so that is where the conundrum lies 
and I don't really have a solution for it. Uh, all I can say is that I think we've lost, we've lost so much, and therefore we are the poorer for it today. Yeah, I just, I just thinking of all of those versions that you mentioned, the different tribal versions, and it sort of makes you think, right? Like we are also always hell bent on the original, the purity of the text. Uh, but there's so many. I mean, I think the beauty, and that's why we're so attracted to retellings and making these stories our own, is because they're so universal. No, and and you know what I was thinking of Tara is is that you know all these stories are set in ancient times, uh, you know. But what if you know one of these stories was set in today's world, right? So we know that most of the modern dating and romance happens on apps, right? You know, be it Tinder, be it Grinder, that there's something for everyone. Um, so Ashok, I'm very curious if you could take one of these stories and adapt it for an online world. Which would it be, and how would it play out? Oh, you know, you've asked me something, and I'm smiling over here while you've been, uh, while you were saying that, because I'm right now in talks with a, a major studio actually to do an adaptation of Epic Loves, but it's a very early days, so it's not like it's just happening. I don't know whether it'll ever happen, but it's my wish. But it's my wish to ha- to make it happen, as in to take Epic Loves and adapt it, uh, you know, uh, for modern times. And the point being that these stories are eternal. That these, <clears throat> whether it's a love triangle or whether it's a jilted love or unrequited love, as in the case of Amber and Bhishma, and all the different shades of love that we see in these epics, they are continuing even today. We are reliving these same stories <clears throat> in one form or the other, you know, time and again. And, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the New York Times uh, series uh, Modern Love, which was based on you know yeah yeah one of my favorite yeah yeah exactly so that came from real stories uh, on the new york times podcast where real people called in and told their stories and then they made it into a tv series so similarly i see no reason why uh, we can't you know adapt these stories and that's my attempt to do so i'm not going to do it right now because that comes too close to what i'm actually in talks with the production studio for uh, but you know let's hope that sometime soon yeah i i really wish it happens i'm let, so let excited like i can't contain yeah. my excitement <laughs> no tara you yeah. know well, let us manifest it on books and beyond yeah. <laughs> it will happen yeah. so exciting yes okay so let's hope so let's hope so and it i think it would but i agree with you it would be really beautiful because like you rightly said, whether it's through an app, whether it's through swiping, you know, whatever it is, I mean, then it really, it becomes so relevant because you really see how Dushyant is actually ghosting Shakuntala, literally, you know, and it's so apt because that is what it is, what's happening, whether it's, you know, even if it happened 5,000 years ago, but that's what he was doing. And in that, I think the beauty of it is that, you know, in many ways, we are still the same. People don't really change, not in the most essential ways. The outward trappings change, the paraphernalia changes, but we are the same and love is always the same. And I think that is, you know, what Epic Loves the book is about and what I hope to achieve with the series that I'm, you know. Yeah, yeah. I just I just thought of one scenario because you mentioned ghosting, you know, I was just thinking, okay, what if it was catfishing and, and you know, uh, all the time Shakuntala has been chatting with someone, she thinks it's Dushyant and then when the person turns up with someone else and oh, God. oh, that would be so funny. That that actually is also there. It's in another story, but I won't oh, get okay, that. Okay. Yes, I'm, I'm using all those present day tropes and things because trust, like I said, they've all been there. And actually, you can trace it back to any of these ancient stories. And you say, oh, yeah, that's catfishing. And that's, you know, uh, two-timing and three-timing, as in the story of Sharmishta, Yayati and Devyani. So it's all there. It's just that, you know, the they're wearing, you know, ancient garments and saying, oh, Rajay, and things like that, instead of saying, hey, dude, you know, whatever. So one of the questions that I had is that, um, you know, there's a lot of typical portrayals of the male gaze in the epics, right, Uh, which we've spoken about. And one of the um, scenes that I really liked is in Shantanu's story, um, you know, his son has a very, uh, Shantanu has a very funny reaction to his father describing a woman as sexually attractive. And he's like, oh, you know, like, I'd never like thought of like, 
my father would describe a woman like this to me and that was quite refreshing so i wanted to ask what are the other ways in which you have seen male characters in the epics stray away from the typical male gaze okay so that's an interesting example because actually that actually in the original epic the way i read it it was very classic male gaze basically his father is telling him you know oh you know this girl came to me also and she wanted to sit on my lap and you know seduce me so i said oh hang on hang on babe don't sit on my uh, left uh, thigh because that is the th- reserved for uh, uh what you call it uh, for the girlfriend but you can sit on my right thigh which is reserved for daughters and grandchildren and everything so he stopped her there yes that is literally how it is described in the mahabharat and i have to say one thing vyasa is a lot better and he doesn't indulge in that much male gaze you know as for example to give you two examples uh, valmiki and kamban both they spend so much of time describing women's breasts and hips oh god i just did not truck with any of that in my ramayan retelling trust me i did not i just said to hell with it i'm not going to do all that but it goes on like for lines and lines and lines it is not just male gaze it is like embarrassing it's embarrassing it's like guys you're embarrassing yourself just stop right there you know <laughs> so uh Vyasa is a lot better in that sense he just tells you what happened and yeah if you know the father actually said that he's just reporting it he's not saying it in a lewd or lecherous kind of way in fact the father is actually being very nice and uncle like saying that no 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 i'm too old this is not going to work out you sit uh, properly don't try to seduce me that way so it's quite refreshing even in the original and i have to say it's unusual and interesting how the mahabharat is better at dealing with this than the ramayana is which normally you think it's the other way around the mahabharat would be the more sexual and everything uh, whereas the ramayana is very erotic if you read it in the original or even in the you know the kamban retelling and that's a shock actually when you actually get down to it it's shocking to see how the ramayana is so erotic it is very kama sutra in many ways Hmm. I never knew that. Yeah, that the, there was such a stark difference. That's interesting. Um, and the last question before the rapid fire round is: I just wanted to know: Are you ever scared that your retellings might offend readers, especially in this political climate? Well, you know, I've I've always followed the principle that I have to be true to the source. At the same time, I have to be aware of when I am writing and why I am writing. and i always believe that if i am writing with honest intentions things will be fine and my intention has been very simple there is a core story which is a beautiful story like i said i see the mahabharat as an epic about love not about war so i am not looking to offend i am not looking to create controversy i am not at the same time i am not going to let uh, you know them get away with things like like i mentioned you know erotic descriptions of women's breasts i'm not going to do that so i said no no forget about all that and at the same time i'm not going to push a certain party line or a religious line and on the other hand i'm not going to be reactionary against it also so the first thing you know that the thing that you have to realize that you're reading versions of these ancient epics which is written by a person who comes myself i i'm not a hindu i don't come from a hindu background i don't come from a hindu upbringing i did not grow up with these stories i studied the sources so i come to it as an honest uh, as a writer from a writer's point to be looking at the storytelling so i don't have either a pro agenda or an anti agenda and i think that comes through and in that sense because of that it is truly a secular retelling it is truly an indian retelling and that's why i don't think i've i've ever had any controversy touch wood i hope i never do because i don't set out to either challenge or to further the you know the whole uh, traditional line yes absolutely no like they say there will be defense only when there is offense so if there's none um it won't be okay so we come to our rapid fire round which is one of the most exciting rounds um so what you have to do is you can reply in one word or one line okay okay all right asuras or devas asuras okay one trope you see in mythology that's overdone hmm okay men men over women <laughs> okay 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there are many symbols of love in mythology, like the lotus. Which is your favorite? Water. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Which is why you responded so well to my uh, Ganga descriptions of her as a river. I, yeah. Yes. I actually do this. I actually look through and I look for the references to water. Don't forget that they didn't have water on tap back in those days. So drinking water was literally precious, and they valued it. And the descriptions of water bodies. Uh, when I say water bodies, I mean like lakes and uh, rivers and everything, and even people interacting with the water, the filling. a pot or whether swimming in it or everything is so beautiful and so recurrent that it's a very re- prominent motif of these epics and i love that because i love nature and i love water in nature also i'm going to look out for more water references in your work now that i know that that's 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 really interesting yeah two retellings uh, that are not your own that you absolutely love okay i'll this is a tough one but i'm going to give you answers that may not be very expected one is a retelling of a story from the bible the story of joseph you know in egypt uh, called joseph and his uh, many colored coat original story but the version i'm talking about is joseph and his brothers by thomas mann now that was the actual retelling of a classic biblical story which is similar in in context to our you know ancient epics in that sense uh, but in a, in the modern era when thomas man wrote it which actually inspired me and triggered my uh, instinct to go for a retelling of the ramayana people assume that it's because i'd read harry potter which actually wasn't published when i uh, started writing or even the lord of the rings but that was not my inspiration my inspiration was joseph and his brothers by thomas man so that is actually the only one that i can mention because that's the only one that stood out to me wonderful oh yeah i wouldn't have expected that What is the one crucial difference between Indian mythology and as compared to its Western counterparts? Okay, this is a tough one <laughs> because there are so many similarities and overlaps, and in some ways we see some stories arguably being retold in different cultures. Like the tale of Ramayan can is very very similar in so many coincidental ways to the tale of Helen of Troy, you know, and you know the. the prince coming to reclaim his uh, his uh, wife and so on uh, that there's lot of symbiosis between the mythologies of the world cultures but what i see is not just indian but a, a kinship between indian and asian mythologies if you look at uh, the chinese uh, the famous chinese epics the great epics in fact which may in some ways predate even our ramayana and mahabharat it's believed uh, and they have fantastic stories so those we share a very similar kinship to the extent that journey to the west which is a very famous chinese epic is actually about hanuman guiding uh, this this group of pilgrims to come to meet the buddha in india so it's it's all of one family whereas when you look at greek roman norse uh, mythologies and each of them have such different characteristics and uh, you know uh, natures that it's it's very very simply put it's like the difference between India and America, or uh, Bombay and Mumbai and uh, New York. That's the simplest way I could do. Yes, and this is the last one: Greek or Roman mythology. Which would you like to retell next? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be interested. I'm, I'm no longer telling. By the way, I'm no longer telling mythological stories for quite a few years, actually. You know, I've, yeah, yeah, I know. We have a no, lot of yes, uh, your other books as well. Yes. Thank you so much. This was like I think we need to have another session with you because I literally could have like I have so many questions I could have gone on. You uh, were really insightful, so thank you, thank you so much for this. Really, you're most welcome. It's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you for being wonderful, uh, you know, conversationalist on this conversation, and I'd love to do another one with you. Uh, maybe I don't know if you. Maybe we should pick another book of mine then. You know that. Yeah, we could. Yeah, definitely. Yes. We would love to. Yes. Yes. So here we are. We're at the end of yet another journey into the many worlds of books and beyond with Bound. I'm Tara Khandelwal. I'm Michelle De Costa, and this podcast is created by Bound, a company that helps you grow through stories. Find us at Bound India on all social media platforms. 
So tune in every Wednesday if you live, eat and breathe books and join us as we discover more revolutionary books and peek into the lives and minds of some truly brilliant authors from India and South Asia. And don't forget to keep your love for stories alive for books and beyond.